0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I'm here today with Raina Rapp, the professor of anthropology and an affiliate at the Center for Disability Studies at NYU. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Raina uh, has been, is it, an anthropologist who's been working in the area or or in the environ of genetics for decades. She really uh, came to prominence in this area in 1999 when she published uh, a seminal book called, I guess it's kind of funny to call it seminal, right?
1: Right. You should call it ovular (laughs) book. Yeah.
0: book called Testing Women, Testing the Fetus, The Social Impact of Amniocentesis in America. Um, and this is a book that really, well, it questioned us. It questioned the impact that this new field of prenatal testing was having on the people being tested and then how a culture of testing would affect the lives of of uh, the children they brought forth and individuals with disabilities. But I think genetic counselors often felt that in questioning us that uh, Rena was articulating well, many of our own concerns uh, that gen- about genetic testing that it was a profound and significant step not to be entered into lightly, so I think g c s have had a really have really welcomed her what I think of as her anthropolog- anthropological lens in our hard science, you know looking at genetic counseling and looking for for meaning, where others were looking for, you know, strictly defined outcomes. And uh, genetic counseling lives at that intersection, you know, of the the hard and the soft. So I think I, like many other genetic counselors, are big fans of this woman who just seems to sort of drop wisdom wherever she goes. So let me start by asking you, Raina, as an anthropologist. So it, it is an unusual decision to focus on what I described as the culture of medicine. Do you think that's a fair description of what you've done?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for the accolades. But I don't think it's such an unusual field to have worked in maybe the genetics part. But in the period that I was coming of age first as a graduate student, and then as a young professor of anthropology, there was a huge influx of feminist concerns that had to do with the body and women's body into a what was then a very small field but became a very large field of medical anthropology. Medical anthropologists have a kind of professional license to study health and illness and healing around the globe, both in its local implications and increasingly in its global context. And so in that sense, I just joined a movement within my own academic training,
0: but and, I also and what came brought from, you to genetics what
1: well you- that's just what I was about to say so I had been an activist in the women's health movement as an undergraduate and a graduate like so many people of my generation, and I had always thought I'd work on reproduction and um, probably teenage pregnancy, but instead, having become what was then referred to, this is the old Pleistocene age of genetics, but referred to as an elderly prima gravita. I had my first kid at 37. I found myself off Offered testing and barely understood the implications of what I was being asked. To test for and what I would do with that information and the decision ultimately to act on it. All of those things were so unsettling and I felt so alone as though nobody had really prepared me for this. For all of that, I had a wonderful genetic counselor. It just felt like I had dropped off the edge of the earth and I decided to figure out how to study this. And again, this is the hardening of the Earth's crust era. Um, remember phone bills for individual landlines? I just burned up the wires looking for other women who would gotten positive diagnoses, as it's so antiseptically called, and as I had um, at that stage of life, early in a pregnancy or not early enough in a pregnancy, and started interviewing and then worked with a bunch of medical Uh, professionals to find patients who'd had similar experiences and then ended up working at the prenatal diagnosis laboratory for the city of New York as an anthropologist, working with genetic counselors, trying to understand your practices and the depth of your concerns for what pregnancy meant and what it meant to be offered these kinds of tests for women of diverse racial, ethnic, religious class, national, linguistic backgrounds. New York City, was and remains a very, very diverse place. And I did my research with women who may or may not have had any understanding of what genetics were, what um, it meant to find a fetal disability, what a disability meant to them in their family and community life. Um, what that disability meant in terms of what might be worth or not worth an abortion, how they felt about that from their religious and familial experiences, and on and on and on. And it opened up a fascinating world. So it became an aspect of medical anthropology for me.
0: Yeah. And uh, I know it's hard, right? Because it's a lifetime's worth of work. But I mean in terms of the genetic counseling what did you what did you find did you I mean we think I think the field thinks of itself as being tremendously sensitive to that long list of issues that you just introduced um,
1: I think that's true. I think that it is a field that has gone through a lot of evolution. I had the great good fortune to encounter y- your immediate ancestors in genetic counseling. You know, early on in the field, it only really developed from the 1970s forward. And I started working in this field in the mid 1980s. So I think, unlike some of the more sclerotic branches of medicine, where it's hard to change people's minds, that this was an arena overwhelmingly inhabited by women, um, thinking about their responsibilities as professionals dealing mainly with other women. And I think that was a kind of an opening for sensitivity. Nonetheless, the assumptions of medicine are universalizing. And certainly to describe chromosomes and DNA and stretches of exomes and the like, yes, of course, universal, but they always fall within sociocultural um, contexts. And it seemed absolutely imperative that genetic counselors themselves understand their own context and how it was changing. And I think a lot you've had to do that as a profession, not least because so many tests are moving so fast. Whenever you and I have talked, the number of new tests and possible consequences that you open up for me, and I feel like I'm somebody who kind of keeps up with the literature, at least is aware of it, but boy, there is so much going on so fast, and none of it can be taken outside of its socio, I would say, political and economic and ethical contexts.
0: We are a political science, I always say.
1: Yes, I love that part of your
0: branch of the political sciences, for sure. You can't take that out of genetics
1: not its history and not its present and not its near future, they're all very, very politically charged
0: Yes, yes, yes indeed and so that phrase that very clever phrase of uh, more sclerotic branches of medicine, there's a concern right now that maybe prenatal genetics may be getting more and not less sclerotic as we expand to be able to offer testing to more people so I have mixed feelings. So, routinization, right? Routinization is this buzzword that you, um, you 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 probably think it's a bad word, right? Like-
1: well, you know, I thought about that because you had sort of alerted me to that as a possible topic we could talk about. I think routinization could be a very good word if it were meant to to include good access to adequate health care, to good nutrition, to decent education, to safe housing and neighborhoods and the like. But of course, that's not what we mainly talk about when we talk about routinization in medicine. It too frequently connotes acceptance of medical tests and procedures without sufficient time and resources to understand what you're being offered or usually rush to either accept or reject. And that's a structural problem. I wanna be very clear here. It's not on the individual nurse or PA or genetic counselor um, to cope with the fact that our medical system is so broken in so many ways that people just don't have the resources to deal with the fact that they're being offered something that is described, let's say, as just a simple blood test, which can now reveal, if we're talking about the non-invasive prenatal tests a vast array of embodied information that many of us are not prepared yet to understand so
0: we're we're, t- we're talking about this a lot around prenatal testing recently and there are two schools of thought i don't know that they're contrary to one another but one is simply a concern that as we've opened up prenatal testing so uh, non-invasive cell-free DNA testing, those tests, they're sort of a hybrid. I mean, they're a screen, so we're always counseled to call them a screen and not a diagnostic test to keep the separation right. between the diagnostic And that's fair in the sense that they are still not definitive and need to be followed up and so on. But in, from, I think from a human point of view, they lie somewhere in between because the older tests... When somebody tested positive, as as you have had the experience, they come in and there's a you can genuinely say, okay, let's start the conversation saying the most likely thing that's gonna happen here is you still the most likely thing is that everything's fine. And that's a very different conversation than the one that's like, okay, we most likely have a problem. Or I shouldn't use that phrase, have a problem, but we most likely uh, have something we need to talk about. Um, not the outcome that you were expecting, maybe not the outcome that you wanted, but it, its that that level of likelihood is is not triv- is is non-trivially different. It's fundamentally different. Um, changes things a great deal, right? So you have this in-between thing that's going on now that's being offered to lots and lots of people, and while it makes the whole field of prenatal counseling more complicated. And maybe you could make the argument as we need much more counseling now that there is multiple different types of tests that people are deciding between, right? Right. At the same time, you're expanding it to everybody so you have much less time. So just when you think like maybe people need more counseling, they're going to get much less counseling. Absolutely. Those are just a set of facts, right? So we've been looking you and I, but also generally the field's been looking at, you know, how can good information be given to people in this routine way and then counseling be used productively, you know, as needed. And there's the the rub with routinization. Like, in theory, and and, and I've heard a lot of people say this very recently, um, you know, it could be great, right, because you could – turn to technology to give people the sort of basic information that they need. And then the interpersonal interactions could really focus not on information giving, but on the kind of thing you're talking about, understanding the context, understanding the person, what are their goals? What are their aims? What do they need? What are they frightened of? Right?
1: Absolutely. And of course, webinars, podcasts, uh, slideshows, there are Infinite number of mediated possibilities here, which are all very exciting for basic information. But some of it is also just incredibly hard to routinize. Uh, You know, uh, 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 you might get a test that reveals something about. Um, and, uh, condition, but not the ambiguities and the range that it entails. So the capacities and social meanings of something attached to, like, say, sex chromosome differences, which now are, you know, part of the NIPTs. So what does that mean? Um, how are you going to interpret that? And at what point are you going to have enough information to really cut through people's fears and biases, um, to be able to talk about it and who's going to have the time and the money essentially to pay for that talk. Well, I
0: mean, voice of being somewhat realistic here I, I, at best, and this is at best, like um, at best, right. those conversations are going to have, happen after somebody tests positive and not before right. somebody tests positive. They just there isn't space for that level of conversation you're describing there to happen before the test is taken. Understood. What I'm actually concerned about, I, I'm, some days I wake up and think I've kind of bought a bill of goods on this. Routinization is going to mean that we save our counseling for these important counseling situations because I really believe that's what genetic counselors think and aim and envision. But I wonder once we get the technology rolled out and so the information giving is done semi-automatedly, whether there will be budget. To cover the conversation part at all, if we're not giving out the information,
1: I don't know. Right, and made more complicated by the fact that so many counselors now find their professional affiliation, their jobs, their employment within the commercial testing companies, and while they may be extremely well trained to be neutral and empathic when and if somebody gets a positive result or a complex positive semi, as you're saying, hybrid result of increased risk, but not definitive. And what are we talking about here? Nonetheless, being inside a commercial sector, which has every reason to want to see expanding tests as the wave of the near future in terms of sort of their bottom line and their profitability means that the counselor's, themselves have to be part of that sense of more and more tests for more and more conditions which make them sometimes much harder to explain or find the time and the money to do that kind of explanation that kind of more empathic work that you're talking about
0: yeah that conflict of interest is i think the field has recognized that as a problem i I don't you know i don't know how easy it'll be to entirely rid us of it um and honestly, I think sometimes genetic counselors have a hard time because, really, because actually, they're very nice people.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've
0: never kind of worked with a, or met or known a group of people who are so uniformly a nice group of people, and I honestly think it's hard for them to take seriously the idea that they wouldn't do the right thing by their patient. Sometimes we may not be the fastest to recognize the inherent conflict of interests, But it has been pointed out to us that this is a problem, and I think I think we're kind of on it. Uh, one thing that that you and I were talking about when we talked about the prenatal space here is you have had a lot of experience looking at what they're doing in some other countries, particularly France, right? Uh,
1: yes. Recently, I've had this wonderful set of exchanges to... Years in a row, I've had first a French team that was organized by French friends and colleagues to come to New York, and then I brought an American team back to France, and we talked about how all of the reproductive technologies are used so differently in our countries and that's really quite amazing if you think about it that is we're used to thinking okay when this stuff hits developing nations or middle income countries it's going to look a little different let me tell you it looks a lot different across different so-called western or rich or well-developed countries as well Um, You could argue very easily that we in the United States are the Wild West of testing. I know that's a language you've used in your own work a lot, Laura, and that you can get pretty much anything tested for or any kind of reproductive technology if you have the money to pay for it and the connections to find it. Whereas in France, you could argue that you have the most strict regulation of all of Western Europe.
0: So if I get, not me, I'm too old, but if my kid gets pregnant and she lives in France, what, what, what is she going to be offered? Assuming that she's, she's savvy and up to date, but not, not aggressively seeking, you know.
1: So for example, she will be offered routine screening and France uses and has a reasonably high Within the European context, a reasonably high rate of abortion for Down syndrome as well. After all, the you could argue that the, that the uh, extra chromosome in twenty one in the twenty first locus was discovered in France. Jerome Lejeune and Marthe Gauthier, his lab uh, technician assistant, basically discovered it. It was her preparation through which it was discovered and named. So um, the French have been on top of this stuff for a very long time. None. The less, there is a sense that you only do routine testing and that you don't do anything fancier. You certainly can't do a lot of the kind of testing that's done here, for example, in IVF. And you can't do racially, ethnically implicated testing at all. That is, there is no space within prenatal testing in France for something like... Um, uh, looking for people who have an Ashkenazi uh, Jewish genetic background being offered specific tests for those kinds of differences. So
0: my, my kid, just to stay with this example, which I can only do because my kid who is not interested in having a baby right now is not listening, I assure you. To get so <laughs> lucky, 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 lucky. <laughs> yeah. my kid who's family. half Ashkenazi Jewish, she comes in she is not going to be offered preconception carrier screening okay. she is not Correct. going to be offered a uh, Jewish genetic
1: no Nope, absolutely not. In fact, given the history of eugenic thinking and World War II, there is a tremendous sense that to test on using the racial or a racial-ethnic category is not used throughout France and in some other European countries as well, Germany notably, parts of Scandinavia as well. It is just not used as part of the health. Uh, you don't collect health statistics. But that. that.
0: But that – so so that – would make them different from us five years ago. But today, in the States, you're much more likely to be offered a pan-ethnic screen. Nobody, right. needs, to, exactly. nobody needs to say, what ethnicity are you? Um, but they haven't brought that in, right? Because, I mean, like, look, uh, if I had to balance these things out, um, I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, do the numbers, blah, 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 blah. The, I would say, um, without doing any testing, my... Risk of having a child with Down syndrome may have been Sans testing only a, a fifth my risk of having a child with Tay sachs but I would. It sounds much more acceptable to me. I, you know, I'd take. I, if I could only test for one, I wouldn't pick the kid with Down syndrome. I'd be okay with that, right? Like,
1: sure. I, what it's I don't not
0: want a fatal suffering condition. No, right. it's not a fatal suffering condition, right? Absolutely. So, like, that's a strange to me, orientation of priorities.
1: uh... Absolutely. So I'm going to just give you two French anecdotes, and anthropologists thrive on these little stories, and I cannot tell you what they represent. But these were two that came up at our conferences. The first is somebody of Ashkenazi Jewish background who was born in Israel, um, raised for a few years there, and came at the age of what we would call middle school to France. She then had a very successful life as an academic in France does all her publications in French, when she went through her first pregnancy, she asked for um, screening for Tay-Sachs specifically. And they said to her, why? And she said, because I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. And they said, you have to go see a psychiatrist. You're much too anxious about this pregnancy. So that was one. And the second one is, again, an academic family. And therefore, I want to stress that because in France, you'd call this system day that is that you have a way a workaround plan here and here comes the workaround plan a friend of mine who was part of this uh, research team that i've been working with had a daughter who was pregnant and asked for screening on the basis of her ashkenazi background and was told no we don't do that in france madame she went home and talked to her partner who's a lawyer and who said go back and ask them to put it in writing. And when she went back, they said, oh, well, we don't do it, but we're going to send you to a clinic that will. You have to have a lot of cultural capital, including a partner at home in this case who was a lawyer, to know that you can push the system and get what you want. But for most people, it's just not offered and not available.
0: So you, you can tell me what it means.
1: I mean, if 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 you can't tell
0: me what it means, who can tell us what it means? <laughs> You're in the what it means business.
1: Definitely. <laughs> I, I mean,
0: I do think it's this business about sending saying you need to go to a psychiatrist is incredibly interesting because one of the big overarching issues that you have brought up time and time again in your work is – you know there's a lot of this that seems like what's the why, why not do this test and why not add that test and why not if we can do it do test for this and this and this and this and this when there's no additional cost and you have pointed out for decades now the additional cost in anxiety the additional cost for everybody in this you know uh sense that a pregnancy is is, is at risk and i, I have to say I came into genetic counseling a bit later and cleverly had all of my children before I got there. And every day I went through school, I thanked my stars that I knew none of this when I was pregnant. And I say that to other genetic counselors and they're like, Oh my God, I spent my entire pregnancy terrified. And, and I, but I see, even if you're not a genetic counselor, um, there is sort of a, like they're scaring young mothers to death out there. And, i, I don 't know there has to be a balance somewhere, right, so what they're saying is very much to one side of like you know what the important thing is don't worry too much, um, which is feels very alien to me, but also
1: true absolutely, but we have entered what. Uh, sociologists um, Charlotte Faircloth and uh, Zeynep Gürten call the age of anxious pregnancy the age of anxious parenting. The, you could argue if you wanted to be a flat out materialist that as the whole world with a few significant pockets but the whole world has moved toward lowering its completed fertility rate as more and more women have education and access and also necessity to be in the Employment market, as divorce rates remain high, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole material background in which we are having fewer kids, and each and every one of them is had under conditions of greater and greater anxiety. And it's not a question of which is better; it's just a difference. We are living in a very different time than, say, you know, your grandmother's pregnancy, (laughs) and it's happened very, very fast.
0: Well, it's hard to weigh. The I, I would say the anxiety issues against the 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 medical gains, right? The it's very hard. I would say that it's apples and oranges, but I'm just coming back at you because you keep quoting these like really academic sounding amazing people with French names. So I'm gonna t- <laughs> Chuck Klosterman, <laughs> from Sex lies and cocoa puffs, Good. who Great. pointed out that the expression <laughs> "it's apples and oranges" is dumb because. It's hard to find two things that have more in common than apples and oranges. They're both sort of round fruits, you know. And so, but so, yeah, so so um, they're, they're not like apples and oranges in that they're much more different. Um, the, the gains of less anxiety and the gains of, you know, not having a child with a condition that you're concerned about or having the option to, to know about it and prepare it and so on. Um, they're hard to weigh one against another, if only because, um, you know, as a public health measure, you'd have to say, like, here's the value of this against the value of that. But in fact, every individual would value those two things differently.
1: Exactly. And would probably value both and have to make some pretty complicated choices. But I want to talk about the another part of the anxiety that all of these kind of expansive medicalized moments in pregnancy, including but not exclusively genetic testing, bring up. And that is more and more and more anxiety about not being able to produce a quote unquote perfect baby. And I use that very carefully. Pregnant women don't talk about, pregnant, about perfect babies on the whole. They talk about wanting a healthy kid. And that's a rather different Um, desire. But I think one of the things that this whole conversation and this whole rapid, rapid expansion of testing kind of masks is the rise also of disability rights, disability consciousness, some sense that disabled lives are worth living and that they provide many capacities, not just incapacities. And I think that part gets lost very often, in part because genetic counseling is a profession which obviously... Needs to talk about genetic problems, not just about what might be okay after a problem is discovered. So there's a whole other realm out there that also needs to be incorporated. And I know, again, the profession has actually thought a lot about disability, and many, many genetic counseling programs have built experiences with disability and families living with kids or other adult members with disabilities into their counseling protocols or their training. But there just isn't enough time for a lot of this as well. So that makes it a much more complicated. It's not only not apples and oranges, but it's very, very different kinds of life choices. And I want to ask
0: you a question that was asked to me, and it sort of dumbfounded me. I was having a conversation with a very well-known, very eminent, admired feminist scholar who said to me, tell me something. There have been all these articles about how um, the fear is that Down syndrome may become extinct in this country or that country, not not the United States.
1: Right, right. There's a very famous little um, YouTube video, I think from Iceland, that says yeah, 99% yeah. abortion it, but, rate. And
0: it's it's it's... People have looked at those numbers, and it, you know, it may be an overall, But never mind. Just as, as a thought, as a thought experiment, she said, "What would be bad about there being no Down syndrome?" And um, I think I'm going to answer this question differently than you do. But if I say that to you, if we if we could eliminate Down syndrome, now, what would be wrong?
1: I. Yes, I want to start by saying we should not be reifying any particular ability or disability and that that is something that has to start this conversation, the assumption that we can know. I mean, we can parse this topic by saying, okay, Uh, disabilities, which are actually not even just disabling, they're lethal or they cause suffering. That's straightforward. Everything else is much less straightforward. Meanwhile, we're living in a time of flourishing disability rights worldwide and disability studies and disability arts. And you know, I'm a college professor. So of course, I'm going to answer what we need to answer your question, Laura, is just more and more public education. If I answered it any other way, I'd be out of a job. So, you know, I've got my own bias here. But in any case, we all need worldwide in all our different divisions and our many heterogeneous social situations, we all need some disability expertise. That's a phrase from an anthropologist, Cassandra Hartley. We need to understand cross-disability synergy, another highfalutin phrase from an anthropologist, Deva Kasnitz. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means we need to know something about disability way before we encounter it under crisis situations of genetic testing in pregnancy. That is, all of these things should not come as a surprise if we understand that disability is just a part of human variation. Now, we may, as individuals, choose to accept or not accept a specific disability in our burgeoning pregnancy. Understood and totally supported. Obviously, I started this conversation by saying that's where I came into this field. Nonetheless, the fact that most of us know so little about disability is part of the problem because there isn't just one way to think about this. We should be thinking about capacity Capacities and strengths, not just pathologies and impairments. If you,
0: if you feel like, so I'm, I'm going to go back to my question. Okay. You could do it
1: by waving a
0: wand. And if you waved that wand, no babies, no, no babies would ever be born in the world again with Down syndrome. Would that be a bad thing? So that's what she asked me. And I mean, it took me a few days to kind of, formulate my answer because no one had ever asked me the question that way before would it be a
1: bad thing uh, um, so can I cheat and ask how you answered
0: <laughs> well you know I, I, I yes but I want to tell you that 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 I I I cheated initially <laughs> and said, let me tell you what I'm really worried about <laughs> and then I did but uh, then I came back to her and I said I have been thinking about what you're saying and I said if it were possible to go from here, there's a certain amount of that condition that is in the area of differences, like, you know, yeah, differences where there's nothing inherently better or worse. And then there's a certain amount of, you know, sickness and disability associated with it, right? There, there, there's a certain percentage. So it's not sure. like it's not a choice most people would make. Um, most people wouldn't be neutral about whether or not they had a child with Down syndrome. The closest friends I have who happen to have a child with Down syndrome, they lost that child. So their experience wasn't about that, their right. baby's disability. Their right. experience it's was the about their losing child's a child. heart defect, sure. right? Like, yeah. So, um, so if, I, if, if you could wave a wand and get there and you could go from here to there and it wouldn't affect a single person with Down syndrome or any other disability on the planet, then you could say, like, maybe that would be a fine thing. But I can't envision a world where we can say it's fine to, get, to never have Down syndrome again and have that be compatible with respect for all of those individuals on the planet right now with down syndrome or other forms of disability. It's hard, so hard to hold those two things in my head is what I said.
1: Absolutely. Um, that and that's and,
0: where, that's where it makes me nervous to just sort of, it, it feels cavalier to just sort of say like, Oh, it'll be fine if we just never have it again.
1: Right. Totally agreed with your answer, but also to say if you're, Developing science models of magic wands. Why wouldn't you just go in and wave away the elevated risk of heart um, anomaly or of leukemia or of gastrointestinal stuff? I mean, it's like well, there's so many other One of those is
0: one of this. those is I yes I did bring up the magic wand, but one of those is a literal magic wand that we yeah. can't do, and one of them is a figurative. What? Right, magic ones it's a thought that can, experiment. That we can do, experiment. like we can do. We essentially right. could theoretically do. So that's why. Yeah. I think it's a, a problem that we identify prenatal testing so entirely with Down syndrome. Now, it's not a mystery why. It's what we've tested for for all these years.
1: Well, it has to do with the development of the test. But in fact, at this point, there is so much all else that's being tested with, for And mostly people don't know anything about it. So that's... I think
0: it's dangerous to look at it all through the lens of Down syndrome. Absolutely. Everything else is quite different, right? Right. And we're only at the very... The thing is, the thing we've been doing for 30 years, we still don't really know what to say, right? It's still incredibly hard. It hasn't actually gotten any easier. This question of should we be doing this testing and how should we explain it to people? And how do you actually get to a spot where you're
1: neutral, Um, Well, in a way, I have the enormous um, privilege of being able to embrace that contradiction. That is, the testing will continue to flourish, and we will get more and more technology that gives us more and more information. We'll also get better clinical medicine that is. People with Down syndrome now survive into their 40s and 50s. That was unimaginable, again, in your grandmothers or your mothers, or even maybe at the time of my pregnancies you know the, the lifespan increase has absolutely to do with clinical medicine and then we learn out uh, about other things in the natural history of this variation the same things going to happen with a lot of other conditions we're going to both get better tests and better medicine to ameliorate living with the conditions at the same time that we're going to continue to have a worldwide Rapid expansion of consciousness and I would hope rights for people with disabilities. So, embracing that contradiction and putting it into our science biology courses, you know, for high school and middle school kids, I think we need education way before you get to the genetic counseling part of things. And while I understand that's what this podcast is about and that's the profession we're describing, I think you have to step back and see where genetic counseling fits in that much larger set of tensions which are absolutely ongoing
0: uh well Sorry. I cannot argue with, uh, I can't <laughs> argue with any part of that um uh i i i just yeah i i feel a little flummoxed sometimes because we're having the discussions that we had 20 years ago and you know, we're we're we we're, we're talking about this wave on the beach, and there's like a tidal wave coming, right? And right. we're having the same conversations we had 20 years ago, and um, you know, we're we're still. I don't know. I've lost my metaphor, but like whatever it is, we're using the little boogie board we're using for the wave that we have now. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's feeling really <laughs> inadequate to the coming wave. So right. Um, I I think. Let me just let me give you one future, because we have to wrap up, unfortunately, because time always flies when you're talking to Raina Rap. That's just something I'm going to tell you. But um, when you look at this future, this tidal wave coming, what frightens you the most? What's the scenario you're afraid of? What should we be, what should we be looking out for?
1: Well, about a million years ago, Abby Lippman, I guess an epidemiologist, called this geneticization, that is the idea that everything's going to be explained in terms of genetics. When so many things are not genetic, or if they are genetic, genetic just forms a substrate of how genetics get expressed. They get expressed through health differences and health disparities, which are themselves so overwhelmingly sociocultural and political. So if you think about something like, oh, asthma genetics, there is so much interesting research going on on asthma genetics, also asthma toxicity, also asthma and um, neuroscience. I mean, there's so much going on. The science is utterly fascinating. But guess what? The rates at which kids who live in my downtown neighborhood um, get asthma and successfully cope with it compared to the rates of kids living, whatever, three, four miles north of me, let's say in the uptown zip codes, um, get asthma and how they cope with it are completely determined by something else. The kids in that uptown zip code are much more likely to have grown up under the Cross Bronx Expressway. And they've got particulate toxicity in their daily air at a much denser rate than kids growing up in my middle-class neighborhood. So to go into the genetics without also dealing with these other questions, just seems to me to be reinventing the same set of privileges and disprivileges. So geneticization is ongoing and we're only moving faster and faster into some. I call big, it gene washing. Okay. okay. Gene washing. So um, when, you, but when
0: you when you bring in genetics and it washes out everything else. right? Um, Thank
1: you. I'm going to start using it and quoting you, Laura. That's really great. I am That's honored. Really great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, I, I do think, um, That uh, So your advice, which I think is great advice, is that we need to get better at putting our genetic information in the context of these broader, not just values. I think we are actually very invested in putting the genetic information in the context of values, people's values, their needs, their goals, but also in the context of how different people's lives are and the socioeconomic differences, the medical differences
1: um, that are caused by other
0: factors. I think that by nature, the low-hanging fruit in genetics, the things we did early, were the most quote-unquote genetic, because
1: that's what you found the gene for. That's that's how how Mendelian genetics, Mendelianism... Yeah. I mean, post genomics, we know that Mendelian diseases are a very, very small part of the problem and that most everything else, if it has a genetic substrate, it is interactive. Hence, the move toward this insane amount of big data, because if you can't, if the, if the prevalent classical dogma about what one gene, one action, one disease has been sh- shot out of the water by all of genomic technology and knowledge. Then we're now trying to do the same thing by inventing other forms that you can combine with it, whether it's through neuroscience or um, um, microbiome studies or epigenetics, all of which I'm a big fan of. Scientifically, they're fascinating. But to assume that somehow in those intersections, we're going to solve health problems without looking at the larger social context in which inequalities really reign supreme is to actually End up inside of the tidal wave that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when, when everyone in genetics knows the phrase that genetics isn't deterministic, and we believe that, but the, the the additional part of that is when things aren't deterministic, that means that you have to make sure that you're paying adequate inf- attention to the other addressable issues that are
1: equal. absolutely.
0: Uh, involved in susceptibility and, um, you know, maybe that is a a great lesson for our field going forward and what it's going to mean as we go from rare, you know, monogenic diseases into cardiology and neurology and, and, um, you know, all the other, uh, uh, specialty fields where genetics is making inroads. Um, all right. So I never want to stop.
1: <laughs> well, we'll I go out for coffee or lunch we'll or something. Lunch. This conversation is going <laughs> to continue.
0: But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to not necessarily stop our conversation, but I am going to pause here to say thank you for sitting in on my conversation with Raina Rapp, which is probably going to continue, I'll be honest with you. And um, please go to BeagleLanded.com, follow us, follow me on Twitter at, at Laura Hersher. Thank you so much. Thanks, Raina.
1: Thanks to you, Laura.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.